Over the last few weeks, the tectonic plates of Manchester's politics have shifted slightly. Today, we take you back to where that began and meet the man who's been at the centre of Manchester's power base for 25 years. This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there, I'm Daryl Morris. Alongside me is Yoshi Herman, as ever, the creator and editor of The Mill, Greater Manchester's new quality newspaper, delivered by email. A big, big week in The Mill newsroom. We've got some really fascinating stories to get into, including this profile of Richard Lees, the outgoing leader of Manchester City Council. But there's also a lot of excitement around a new printed edition of the paper, Yoshi. Yeah, we're doing our first ever printed edition this week. It came out on Tuesday morning and so we've been distributing 15,000 copies of it. And it's effectively a kind of special edition of our favourite stories from the past year, actually more like the past 18 months since we started. It's a bit of a sort of, you know, moment to mark the fact that this is our first full year as a company, as a publication. But it's also, I think, it's a nice chance to include a series of stories about the pandemic and how the city has coped during the pandemic and the various ways in which different people have responded to it. So it's not all about the pandemic. I'd say it's about a third of the story in this edition, this 56-page edition, are about, you know, stuff to do with COVID or shielding or the health service or there's a really lovely story by a guy who went and worked in a care home. And then, you know, the other two-thirds are just, you know, regular mill stories that people have really enjoyed. Plus, we've got this long-form profile of Richard Lee's, which comes out on the newsletter this weekend, but it's in the print edition already. And we've already had, I think, about five or 6,000 of them distributed around around the city. So hopefully some of our listeners will have had one through their mailbox already. I saw some uh, great pictures of the mill team pounding the streets, getting them through letterboxes. <laughs> Love it. And it's, it's a keeper for sure. It's a collector's item, no doubt about that. Uh, we'll talk more about Richard Lee's shortly as well. That fascinating profile, Yoshi, that you have written up of this man who's been, as we say, right at the centre of Manchester's politics now for decades. We'll come to that shortly. First, let's get into the briefing this week, shall we? And get you armed with everything you need to know for the week. And if you walk past the leisure centre or a community hall at the moment, you're likely to see a snaking queue of people waiting for their vaccine booster jab. The hope, of course, is that the booster will help protect Manchester's health infrastructure as the highly transmissible Omicron variant picks up pace. But as Yoshi, we found out this week, difficult decisions are already being made in hospitals. Let's take a wide view of where our health is in Greater Manchester at the moment, Yoshi. Where are we at with Omicron and with COVID, firstly? At the moment, Greater Manchester's case rate is rising. It's about, you know, 20% up on, on what it was the week before. It's still below the England rate. It's not yet rising so fast that you'd sort of be horrified just by looking at the numbers. But what the government says is that the Omicron variant is spreading so quickly that it will very quickly become entirely dominant. And that's when you'll presumably start to see these case rates rising really fast. I would say that it has seems to have been a really, really big response to the government's request for people to get boosters. I mean, you know, one of our readers was queuing in St. Peter's Square the other day, and she said it took about two and a half hours to snake from the central library all the way across the tram stop in towards the, you know, the cenotaph, and then finally down the, down the corridor in order to get her, her booster. And I saw the same thing on Tuesday, the day after she wrote in, you know, massive queues on St. Peter's Square. So clearly there's been a really big response to that. I don't think the Omicron numbers are fully showing up yet in the sort of daily case rate, but they probably will be in a few days time. And you've also been taking stock 
Yoshi at the mill of the impact on the health infrastructure in Manchester. Obviously, that's central to a lot of the thinking, isn't it, around public health measures. And we've heard a story in the last few days of how some Northwest ambulance services are already struggling and being asked to make difficult decisions. That's right. So the Northwest Ambulance Service reportedly made the decision to drop people off straight away. So not wait for them to be handed over into hospitals. But in, in some local hospitals, they decided just to do a, a straight away drop off because they said there were so many other urgent calls they needed to get to. Now that's a, quite a sort of unique measure for them to put in place. We've been doing some reporting on what, what things have been like in emergency rooms in our local hospitals. And I think an interesting point from that piece of analysis that Jack Dalhanty did in our newsletter this week was, it's not actually that in winter times you get an enormous uptick in the volume of people coming to emergency departments. It's more that people who come to emergency departments in the winter times generally have more serious things. They need more serious interventions. So that's why you get these big bottlenecks in A&Es. What's happened with COVID is that you actually do have an increase in volume. So you've kind of got this pincer, double pincer thing. On the one hand, you've got the normal thing of people are coming in with more serious things because it's the winter, respiratory, etc. Then you also have the increase in volume because of COVID. And that is meaning that a significantly smaller proportion of people are being seen within four hours, which is the big government test. I mean, it's supposed to be like 95% seen within four hours. In Greater Manchester, in the most recent figures, which were actually September, it was more in the 60s of, of percent. So that's clearly a really big problem. And I think most people are expecting it to be a really, really difficult winter. Okay. More on that and the detail of it over the next couple of weeks, we'll be keeping an eye across all of those data points in the months to come. Elsewhere, Yoshi, there is growing concern, isn't there, for a student, Charlie Gadd, who has been missing for the last few days after a night out. His family have said they're extremely worried about him and there have been developments in this story in the last day or so. That's right. So we are recording on uh, Thursday morning. So we can give you the update as of Thursday morning. Charlie Gadd was last seen Saturday morning in the early hours. So that's December the 11th. He is a 20-year-old. He was out with his family. And a CCTV image of him showed him outside the Royal Exchange. It was released, you know, this week. And it showed him at 1.15am on Saturday outside the Royal Exchange uh, heading towards St Anne Street in the city centre. It's thought that he sort of left his family, ran off from his family, as how it was reported. When we're recording this, underwater search teams and, and police officers have been seen by the, the riverside at the Irwell, near the Lowry Hotel, so in the city centre. And the police have put out a very short statement saying, you know, officers and colleagues are currently searching the canals in Manchester city centre as part of the ongoing search for a missing Charlie Gadd. So obviously a really concerning story and one that, you know, our thoughts are obviously with his family and we'll have to see how it develops. Absolutely. And finally, Yoshi, there has been a development in another story that we've been following quite closely linked to the shifting in the Manchester power base. And this is a story that developed yesterday involving the councillor Rabnawaz Akbar. Yes, Rabnoaz Akbar is a leading councillor in Manchester. He has the neighbourhood's portfolio and he has been a sort of senior councillor for quite a few years now. He was questioned under caution by police about an allegation that he had made a homophobic remark to a, a council candidate. The police have been looking into that now for about a month, just over a month, and they have 
told him that you know they're dropping their probe effectively that they haven't found any evidence that he made this remark or that this encounter ever even happened and that means that the labor party has unsuspended rabnawaz akbar and that he is back in his role he's back on the executive team of the council and as we said recently when we reported on this this is a story that we broke the backdrop to this is this very bad-tempered selection process in Burnage in South Manchester. It seems to indicate that there might be a quite a rocky future for the new leader of Manchester City Council, Bev Craig, because it seems to indicate that the person who came second in that race for the leadership, a guy called Lutfer Rahman, you know, might be on manoeuvres, he might be, you know, supportive of the person who won this reselection in Burnage that led to this allegation. So we're going to have to see what happens with this one. I wouldn't be surprised if there's more news about this very contentious Burnage political situation. Um, Bev Craig herself is a councillor in Burnage, so it's very, very close to home for the new leader. As we say, it's a thread of that bigger picture of Manchester's politics, as is the departure of Richard Lees. Yoshi's been building a portrait of the outgoing leader of Manchester City Council, the now outgone leader, I suppose, of Manchester City Council. And we'll learn more about him shortly on the podcast. Don't forget more news like that direct to your inbox. You can subscribe to the Mill newsletter, manchestermill.co.uk. Nature has been a solace these last couple of years, hasn't it? We've cherished the outdoors when we could get to it. Plants and trees and wildlife holding our hand through uncertain times. Those daily walks through whatever bits and patches of grass we could find nearby. Nature is the best medicine, said Hippocrates, and the team at Garden Needs in Salford think that maybe he was onto something. The mill's Jack Walton went to visit them. Jack, hi. Hi. Take me to Garden Needs. Yeah, so Garden Needs is this community-run garden centre in Salford. It's like a little oasis almost at the foot of a residential side road. It's a, a nice little tropical place amidst its urban surrounds. And um, they run a mental health and horticulture programme, basically for people with mental health issues, anxiety, um, autism, schizophrenia, um, all sorts of different things, come along and they group together in this little uh, social club every Tuesday and Thursday and they um, they do some gardening together and it sort of, I suppose, it helps them to work through their problems. It's a really lovely little um, group they've got. Nice. And as ever with these things, Jack, it's the people, isn't it, who are the most fascinating parts Absolutely. of these stories. You met Brian. Tell me about Brian. Yeah, Brian was a really interesting guy. I mean, I was speaking to Brian for about... Pff, 45 minutes, but we covered all sorts. I mean, he was a man of many, many interests. Cosmology, uh, Nietzsche, C.S. Lewis, um, the stock market. It was, <laughs> yeah, he had me on the intellectual ropes a little bit. He's someone that suffered from anxiety attacks and autism for all of his life. If he's got a problem or a, like a, a piece of knowledge that he lacks, a, a gap in his knowledge, um, he, he sort of drives him almost to a to a state of despair. You know, he, he researches and he researches and he researches and he neglects food, he neglects sleep. And this programme, this gardening programme, has been one of the only things that can offer him a bit of solace from that, if you like. Just the simplicity, I guess, of the, the gardening process has been a, a big aid to him. And this isn't new, is it? The idea of nature being a, a healing force and good for mental health isn't new. No, I mean, you only need to sort of flick through the agricultural press. You'll get a million and one different articles, green therapy, eco-therapy, um, why the colour green is um, so beneficial to your mental health. I mean, that stuff is out there in abundance. In terms of garden needs, being around uh, like-minded people and just sort of doing those simple gardening tasks, it was really nice to see. Caring for plants has just got this link with it. 
that you can see the plants grow you're actually yeah. seeing something that you've produced you've sown the seed and you've seen it develop you've seen it grow yeah. and then you see it fruit yeah. and then you can go through the whole process yeah. so I think just going through that process and it helps you process your thoughts I think as well and then gardening is quite a can be sort of quite a social thing as well yeah so coming and just working alongside other people and chatting to other people is good as well and it's also about getting people back on their feet as well right if they find themselves in a tough spot getting themselves back into society Yes, it is. I and mean, it's the group leader, he was called Gary. I mean, he, he spoke about this. It was, it was very interesting. He said a lot of people that go there because of their um, mental health conditions are unable to hold down work. They find that very difficult. The stress, I suppose, of the, the day-to-day grind of work. I mean, like I say, Brian was a very intelligent guy, but ex-engineer, but he'd found, after, I think it was a sort of workplace dispute in his first engineering job, that being in the workplace day in, day out, you know, had a real negative effect on his mental health. You know, very intelligent guy, like I say, and that was a case for a few of the guys there. But as Gary was saying to me, being in that group had really brought some of those people on a lot and a lot of them got back into work you know after being there for a few months and that was really nice to hear just having a, a sort of a regular contact with other people yeah. having a regular schedule of something to come and do yeah and having that routine as well seems very important yeah. to, to them as well and it's also a great help for people who are grieving and who have been through grief in their life. And I, I suppose, is it a bit of a stretch to try to draw a parallel between the, the, the circle of life uh, happening through horticulture, flowers growing and dying and growing again, and people grappling with those concerns? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I tried to raise that point. I think maybe they thought I was trying to overthink it a little bit. But both David and Brian had lost their mothers, and in both of their cases, their mothers had been very important parts of their life. So with um, David, it was the trigger for his original referral to the garden needs group you know when his uh, mum died very very difficult time for him you know that on top of his mental health problems and the gardening group was the solace there again for him in, in that difficult time with Brian he had already been going to the group but actually someone from the um the uh, garden needs group noticed the attentiveness and the aptitude with which he showed to the care of his mother during the, the latter stages of, of her life, something he took on almost entirely by himself. And, you know, and they pointed out that that sort of skill for caring, if you like, was something that he should continue even, even after her passing. And so they helped him um, get in touch with a group in Eccles, working with special needs children, some children with Down syndrome, and he does that now as well, along with the gardening stuff. So he's almost got two little groups he's um, he's part of. And he said, actually, to me that the group up in Eccles, that was his, that was his favourite of the two now. Just being able to, to be there for those uh, to those children, you know, was something that he, he, was, he was really skilled at and that he really enjoyed. Oh, that's really lovely. And I really like this idea that there is this patch of grass in Salford and day by day, Brian, David, Gary, it helps them and it's growing and they are growing with it and healing with it. And you can read more of Jack's venture into green needs by subscribing manchestermill.co.uk. Jack, thank you. Yes, thank you very much for having me. A couple of weeks ago, we focused your episode of the Manchester Weekly podcast on the shifting nature of Manchester's politics. A changing of the guard and a shifting of that power was starting to pinch for some members of the Manchester Labour Party. This week, we take a look at where all that began. The departure of an ever-present pillar of the town hall. 
So Richard Lees has been the council leader for 25 years, making his retirement a significant moment for the political landscape in the city. Yoshi Herman has been building a portrait of the man, speaking to friends and adversaries from Manchester to Westminster. The thing about Sir Richard Lees, Yoshi, is that he is arguably one of the most influential politicians this century, and yet outside of, and in some parts of Greater Manchester, not particularly well known. Yeah, exactly. I mean, most people outside the city won't know that name, and some people in the city won't know his name. But if you look at the pace with which Manchester has changed over the past 25 years, the way it's grown, the way it's become the dominant sort of second city of the country, it's sort of difficult to escape the conclusion that he is, even on the national stage, a really important figure, someone that it's important to understand and to study and to know about. And that's why we started embarking on this project. Not only because our, a lot of our readers have been, you know, known about him and liked him or disliked him for a long time, but also that I think that there's a broader significance of his career, which is he's chosen a particular way to lead this city, his adopted home. And those choices have been very successful in some respects. They've been highly criticised in other respects, but they've definitely been impactful. The leadership of Sir Richard Lees has been extremely impactful. The way that this city has changed has been quite dramatic. So we thought it was worth uh, speaking to as many people as possible as, uh, uh, about him, and, and that's what we've been doing for the past few months. You spoke to him on the day, Yoshi, that his resignation was announced as well, didn't you? But he fulfilled his obligation, didn't he, to speak to you? Yeah, that's right. So we had asked for two interviews with Richard Lees and we had been given this date in September and it just so happened that, you know, the night before his resignation from his role as leader had been announced and therefore we were meeting in his office on the first day of this new era when everyone knew he was leaving. And yeah, I did expect him to cancel it because you'd expect on a big day of someone's career like that, that they would, you know, not want to sit down for a, a long features interview, but that's what he did. So we, we went into his office. I went in with Danny. She took some really good portraits of him that you can see in our print edition this week. He was willing to talk, wasn't he? As you say, and he was really open, particularly about his earlier life and his dad. I found this really fascinating and the impact, Yoshi, that his dad has had on his life, but also probably his politics as well, the way he does business. Yeah. When sometimes when you meet people, they are big sort of anecdotalists or they're really charismatic or they're sort of incredibly articulate or elegant in the way they present their ideas. That's not really what he's like. I found him open, willing to talk about personal things, but not particularly articulate, not stunningly brilliant at articulating his ideas. When you speak to people about him, they all mention his intellect. They mention how clever he is, how hardworking he is, how he will go into meetings better prepared than anyone else because he spent all of his Sunday reading all the briefing reports. And that's where he gets his power from. It's the fact that he can basically win arguments. It was nice when we spoke, as you say, to be able to get into some of the more personal things because I've actually never read about his upbringing. I mean, I think I've pretty much read every interview he's ever given, but I've never read much about his upbringing. Everyone always says he's from Mansfield, but actually he's from a couple of slightly smaller towns just next to Mansfield originally. And these are, you know, declining towns in the, in the Nottinghamshire coal field. His grandfather was a, a miner, so the family lived in this sort of coal board house when he was little before they got given a council house. The way he described his relationship with his dad, which I spent a bit of time on, was... 
you know, his dad was very demanding. Even if, you know, Richard Lees was top of his class in, in every subject, his dad would not be happy with that. You know, it was never quite enough. I think he didn't get much emotionally from his dad. And I asked him how that impacted him. And he said, you know, it probably made me a bit defensive. And, and that's what a lot of people say about him. They say he's a pretty defensive. He can be difficult to argue with because it seems like he doesn't enjoy being scrutinised. He says he does enjoy being scrutinised. He says that's rubbish and he loves the cut and thrust. But I think he's someone who really like will get into an argument with you quite easily. And it was interesting to hear about that sort of his upbringing because I think that offers some insight into, into his personality. And I suppose the city got, uh, and those that were working with him, got an early, the first sense of what he was like as a leader when he faced his first big challenge, not long into the job as the leader of the council, when the IRA bomb went off. Yes, the IRA bomb was the, the huge moment in, in Manchester in, in the 1990s. And he had only just been elected leader. What everyone says is that he very quickly saw the opportunity, the opportunity to remodel the city centre, to sort of undo some of these design mistakes that had been made in the post-war period. There was a feeling that that city centre was completely sort of blocked off by the design of the Arndale. And that actually, if you redesigned it, you could get a much sort of more through movement in both directions. And you could have this sort of view from the cathedral area to down to St Anne's Square. They launched a design competition. They got a bit of government funding. They got a lot of private sector involvement. They got all the landowners um, in that bit of town to agree to a plan. And I think that's one of his early achievements. I think it probably showed he's good with detail. He's best behind closed doors in meetings, arguing for the interests of the city, trying to get different people on board, making a strong case for a particular way forward. And the way in which he and the council chief executive, Sir Howard Bernstein, responded to the IRA bomb, I think is a good, a good sort of illustration of, of the kind of leadership that he offered. And there was a month, Yoshi, where he wasn't in charge. It wasn't 25 years uninterrupted entirely. No, that's right. In, in, in 2010, he was arrested for, for striking his, his stepdaughter, who was a teenager at the time. Um, he accepted a caution for that. He had to stand down for a while, a short while. And I actually opened my piece with that anecdote, not because I think it's the most important thing, but just because it's this bit that doesn't get that much coverage. I think people don't really know how to talk about it. And in our interview, he did talk about it. He said some interesting things about how he felt in that moment, how he felt when he was in the police cell. Um, his regrets about the incident itself. So I thought, you know, given that it's something he hasn't spoken about for a long time, get it out there and and not sort of hide it away at the end of a, end of a long piece. So it could have been the end of him. It could have been a much shorter reign as leader. He got support from his family. He got support from a lot of his allies. And maybe if it happened now, you know, a council leader wouldn't be able to get away with that kind of thing, you know, having a criminal record for a domestic violence incident. But um, Sir Richard Lee's carried on. In the period since, you know, that was in 2010, it's been a really difficult time, particularly that sort of five or six years after the coalition government came in, lots and lots of cuts, enormous cuts to the budgets of local authorities. So it's been a very, very testing period. It's also been a period where sort of Manchester's growth and its sort of return to being a, a city that has enormous amounts of self-confidence and gets a lot of outside investment and is interesting to the business community. It's the period in which that's become really, really clear. That's kind of come to a, come to a head as well. 
also in that period, Greater Manchester had an elected mayor for the first time. And actually, Richard Lees, Sir Richard Lees's relationships with other leaders and political figures is a really fascinating insight, isn't it, into the man and into, again, how he does business. Saying the relationship was vital and not especially warm was actually my description. But Andy Burnham did describe it, you know, as a relationship that's been difficult at times. Because really, when Greater Manchester got a mayor... That was the kind of condition from George Osborne. I mean, Osborne told me this personally, right? He said, my red line was that if Greater Manchester wanted to have more powers, it wanted to have more money, it wanted to have control over its own destiny, it wanted to have the ability to re-regulate the buses and all that kind of thing, it needed to have an elected mayor. The people needed to be able to look to one person, not to 10 different council leaders, but to one person. And Richard Lees wasn't a fan of that. And George Osborne actually told me, you know, Richard came down to London and we had a meeting and he was testing out, was I bluffing? Was this actually a red line? And it actually was. And then I think a lot of people assumed, including Osborne, including Howard Bernstein, they assumed that Richard Lees would go for that position. And he didn't. Andy Burnham got that position. And I think because... Richard Lees had not supported Andy Burnham in the most recent leadership election in which he'd gone for the Labour leadership. He had done in the, in the first one Burnham went for, but not the second. I think that made things a little bit difficult from the beginning. Burnham also says another thing that sort of sometimes created tension was that they're very different people. Andy Burnham is very much a instinctive politician. So he's a bit more emotional. He's a little bit more about coming up with an idea, announcing it. He calls that, the, you know, slightly the Westminster way of doing things. You know, you, you go on instinct a bit, you announce things, you get things into the papers. And I think that caused a couple of moments of tension where someone like Lees would say, no, you know, that's not how we do things. He's a much more thorough guy, much more analytical, much more about doing all the preparatory work. So that was interesting on that relationship. And I think it's been a slightly testy relationship, but also one that's been reasonably functional. And I think in the pandemic in particular, they've worked more closely together. I think when Andy Burnham started, there wasn't much communication between the two. So that's an interesting one. One of... Sir Richard Lees's big legacies as he has given up some power. He has chosen to go with the government's idea of having an elected mayor of Greater Manchester. In effect, that made him and all the other council leaders in Greater Manchester just a little bit less powerful. But he did it because he thought it was the right thing for Greater Manchester and, and, and for the city of Manchester itself. And I think that's probably proven to be... Um, you know, a very good decision. And if we bring it into where we find ourselves today, Yoshi, and this thing that we've talked about a couple of times and we've we've considered on the podcast recently enough is this shift in power that we've talked about. And one of the things that's central to that, Yoshi, is how Sir Richard Lees led the party and his close circle and the way that they did business predominantly behind closed doors in private settings. And that's been a real central part of how he's led the Labour Party in Greater Manchester, really. It has. And you hear this this line from op opposition politicians, one party state in Manchester, because Labour has been so successful. There was a time, you know, in the early part of the millennium, where the Lib Dems were pretty strong in Manchester. They were, you know, only a few sort of wards away from actually taking control of the city council. But now that's not the case. Almost every seat now, barring two, is Labour in Manchester. And that means that the Labour group wields an awful lot of power and its internal mechanisms are actually quite important. And what, you know, quite a few people say is the way they wield power is 
by doing everything internally. So all the sort of big debates and dissent and conversations around, you know, what policy is going to be appropriate, they happen within the Labour group at these non-televised, non-public Labour group meetings. And then at the actual council meetings that we as journalists and members of the public can attend, you tend to just hear the consensus of the Labour group rather than like opposition from different figures. That's a political culture that people like Richard Lees and Pat Carney, the longtime secretary of the party and others have chosen. Some people are really uncomfortable with it. It does seem a little anti-democratic, even though they have won all these seats. Because I think what we want in a functioning city and a functioning democracy is to hear people disagreeing, even if they're from the same party. We want to hear people's concerns, like you do in Westminster, you know, Tory backbenchers are angry about this. And you don't get so much of that in Manchester. It's really, really frowned upon. And we talked about in the last podcast, you know, there have been complaints from an outgoing councillor called Marcia Hutchinson that, you know, you can be disciplined by the Labour group whips if you speak out of, about various things or you go to attend an opposition, you know, activist meeting or something like that. So this has been a feature of Richard Lees's reign. It's been something that's been criticised. And I think there are quite a lot of people, even who are very supportive of the Labour Party in Manchester, who would like there to be a more open culture. It'd be interesting to see whether under Bev Craig that becomes possible. You end your piece with Sir Richard Lees in Crumpsall, which is where he lives, and you describe it as being quite representative, quite reflective of who he is, his character. Yeah, that's right. He, after our interview, he drove me round, our second interview, which was in a Crumpsall cafe, he drives me round his neighbourhood, and he's lived there ever since he moved to Manchester. So he's lived in about four or five different homes in Crumpsall, including this bedsit where he originally moved with his first wife, you know, family homes he's lived in with his, his kids and his second wife. And he took me sort of all down these all different streets and he showed me the primary school that had been rebuilt. And he talked about the hospital that's in the process of being rebuilt and told me, you know, where his kids were born and, and, and all that kind of thing. And then he said, you know, there's something I want to show you. And I'd really been assuming, I don't know, I, I think I assumed it was going to be some big leisure centre they had built or something impressive or big. And, and then he drives me down this cul-de-sac and we get to the end and it's just sort of lined with interwar semis. He leads me up this little path and there's just not much to see. And then he stops and I sort of look around and I look at him and he says, you know, this kick rail was... Uh, was put in by a local community group with a grant from the council, but it was all their own work. Then they planted all these bulbs. And that's the thing he wanted to show me. It was this incredibly local, incredibly small scale, kind of a boring thing to be showing a journalist. And it was kind of funny because I was thinking at that moment, God, I can't imagine George Osborne or, you know, Andy Burnham knowing about which community group changed a kick rail and planted some bulbs in their, in their local constituency or, or whatever. And, and, but that's the kind of guy he is. Like He's not flash, really cares about the local. He's a very detail-oriented guy. I think that's the biggest thing about him. He's incredibly detail-oriented. He's not about the big picture necessarily. He, he can think strategically clearly. But I, I think when you really try and boil it down, he's a real details person. And then him showing me this path, it was, it was a nice path. I'm not, I'm not saying it wasn't a nice path, but it, it, it was just, a, it was an incredibly low key way for him to finish our conversations. And I thought um, kind of emblematic of the, of the person he is and, and probably of, also of the leader that he has been. Okay. 
really interesting portrait of the man. You could read more about Sir Richard Lee's outgoing, now outgone, leader of Manchester Council. Manchestermill.co.uk Okay, Yoshi, what's going on in the mill newsroom, my friend? There's a lot of distribution going on. <laughs> Molly and I have been driving around in my mum's car, dropping off bundles of print editions to various members. Actually, it's been really nice to meet our readers, most of them for the first time, people I've heard from a lot in comments and emails and stuff, actually meeting them on their doorsteps, handing over our bundles of uh, mill editions. So that's been um, really fun. We've got a, a nice Christmas story in the works from, from Danny about these clubs that existed in the 19th century to help children from poorer backgrounds in Manchester at Christmas. So she's working on that and yeah, looking forward to our getting the print edition out to as many people as possible. Excellent. Good stuff. I, I highly recommend it. And we always give you a bit of a nod for the week slash weeks ahead, I suppose, as we head into Christmas. What's on your radar, Yoshi? My nod for the week is something that they're doing at the Manchester Art Gallery. It's a sort of a mindfulness audio guide. They've got this big mindfulness focus at Manchester Art Gallery where they're trying to help people with their mental health using like breathing and like audio stuff. And it looks interesting. I haven't actually been to it yet, but like a couple of people have said it's it's good. So that's my nod for the week. Lovely. Mine isn't culture or art, I'm afraid. It's much more practical. But the vaccine bus is doing the rounds at the moment, uh, particularly in my hometown of Bolton, that we will remember as being the scene of lots of these spikes last year. The Bolton market this weekend, the vaccination bus is there all day. You can just walk up and get your first, second booster dose from the vaccine bus at Bolton market all this weekend. Okay, now yoshi thank you jack thanks a lot as well don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast and help others find the manchester weekly as well and if you fancy more of this sort of thing in your inbox manchestermill.co.uk is where you subscribe to the mill email newsletter